Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, I'm Fry. And I'm Bree from Pontifax, a papal history podcast ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. In each episode, we explore the life of a single pope and contextualize their papacy in world history. And then we rate them based on the success of their papacy, how scandalous they were, their impact on the secular world, what their face looked like, and more. They may even pick up a new patron sainthood on the way. In the end, our most impactful papal bull-worthy popes will battle it out for the keys to the pearly gates and to be the popiest pope who ever poped. You can find Pontifax at pontifax.podbean.com or wherever you find your podcasts and on the Agora Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History. My name is Anne Foster. This is a feminist women's history comedy podcast and this is part three of what has truly turned into an ongoing saga of Christina of Sweden. I would suggest if this is the first ever episode of Vulgar History you've ever opened um, to listen to, you know, welcome and but also you probably want to start Christina's story at the beginning in order to to, to understand, not just, like, I think you could listen to this and understand what's going on. It's a very self-contained narrative of what happens with her. But you'll just, like, get the fuller context of things of, like, how did she wind up being a queen with no kingdom? Like, what's the situation? Who is KG? You know, like, that stuff will be explained. Although, I'll try to catch you up. The same way that, like, in the Sweet Valley High books at the beginning, they're always like, Jessica and Elizabeth were very different. You know, one of them was like this and one of them was like this. Um... As we get new characters or people are introduced in the story, I'll try to like give you the backstory of who they are. Because honestly, like it's hard for me to remember sometimes. One of the challenges with researching this one has been that she, we talked about this a lot in the previous episodes, hated women. She spent time almost exclusively with men. And usually when I'm researching these things, I can pretty easily skip over all of the stuff about all of the men because... <laughs> generally isn't important to the stories that I tell in here. I'm often talking about the women, you know, here's her terrible husband or whatever, but there's a lot of men in this story and a lot of them recur. So I've had to learn about them and so I'll try to explain as I come along who is who. Yeah, my cat Hepburn is here to help out with this recording. Welcome. Welcome. Um, are you a fan of Christine of Sweden? Guess who's not? A lot of the listeners. I feel funny to be recording part three of Christina of Sweden 
we've only had like a three-parter a couple times before. Fredigan was a three-part. Catalina de Arosa was a three-part episode. And I just know from my interactions with Titsot Brigade members on Instagram, she's not really anyone's favorite well she's some people's favorite but there's there's a real mix of people who like are here for her and people who are just like she is a nightmare person but i hope we can all agree this is like a really interesting story so where last we left christina she had yeeted the crown in a reverse coronation and today we're going to talk about what happened to her next so i forget if i said this in the other episode but as I've been working on these episodes, the new um, Beyonce song came out, You Won't Break My Soul, uh, featuring Big Frida. It's such a good song. I love it. I listened to it just like back to back to back the day it came out and ever since. But the mood of it, I think, is very much Christina's vibe, you know, where it's like, release your job. She's just like, yeah, release your crown. She's just like, peace out, Sweden. See you never is her mood at this moment. So the first heading I have in my notes is Christina says, you won't break my soul to Sweden and the concept of being its monarch. So she stopped being queen and then KG became the new king. Um, and then hours after the coronation, literally she left midway through the like, welcome our new king KG banquet. Christina headed out to Stockholm to get this post king life going. In Stockholm, she took a few days to pack. Um, while she was there, she attended a church service, like a publicly People saw her during the church service. She took communion there. There's been a lot of major communion moments between Anne of Denmark and this, where it's like taking communion or not is like a real important thing everybody was paying attention to. But she didn't want anybody to know about her super secret sexy Catholic conversion plans because reasons. Largely because she knew once the Axel Oxenherna and everybody found out about that, they'd probably stop paying her like queen pension. So she didn't want anyone to know yet. So she set off. I think I forget if I said this last time. She had, like, put a bunch of, like, Swedish-owned things, but she was just kind of like, um, they're my things now. Paintings, um, jewels, like, a lot of the stuff that she had looted from other countries. She just, like, took that with her because she knew she would need that, firstly, to decorate whatever palace she wound up living in. But also, she knew she might need to use that as collateral to get loans in her new post-queen life. Although she was technically still the queen slash king because that was part of what was in the arrangement she made with the guys was that she was going to be still queen, just not queen of Sweden anymore. So it's time just to go off, be a freelance queen. So she set off towards the Sweden slash Denmark border, accompanied by some officials who she ditched pretty quickly, including her Lutheran chaplain who had thought um, he'd be traveling with her, but you know, they didn't know about the whole Catholic angle of it. But also she just wanted to be free. You know, it's like the pictures of Nicole Kidman after she signed her final divorce papers from Tom Cruise, like that's Christina's vibe here. She's just like, I don't know. You know, it's like if you see, you know, really little kids or like, I don't know, sometimes animals where you just open a door and they just like run, like they just run. They just like want to be outside. And to her, that was, it's a huge moment for her, like like her or not. It's sort of like, um, I don't know, you know, like people who are child stars and they become adults and some of them go on and, just become like Mara Wilson or somebody who's just like guess what I'm gonna do just like not be an actor anymore like I worked my whole childhood like I want to just be free and do my own thing like it, it's that sort of vibe Ariana Richards who's in the original Jurassic Park movie just stopped acting and then became like a painter or something Christina's just like she's been working so hard like through her whole childhood teenage years and now she's like 20 whatever years old and she's just like you know who am I 
who am I if I don't have to base my entire personality off of doing the opposite of what Axel Oxenherna wants all the time? So a real voyage of self-discovery. So, yeah, so she ditched a lot of the people who thought they were going to be accompanying her. She's only accompanied by four gentlemen. Um, then she went on to the border, I guess the border like between Sweden and Denmark, took off her dress and put on pants, cut her hair off, which is not the sort of dramatic haircut you see in like an oldie times or like a costume drama where, you know, the women cut their hair off off to be, you know, like Gwyneth Paltrow's weird wig and Shakespeare in Love or whatever. No, she's got her, she got the Lord Farquaad special, the Catalina de Arauso style bob, but that was like what man hair looked like at the time. And this wasn't necessarily, I talked in the other episodes and I want to continue this dialogue about like Christina, you know, gender non-conforming, non-binary, potentially a trans narrative. This wasn't Christina being like, finally, I can, you know, put on pants and live life as a man. No, this was just her disguising herself as a man. Kind of like what Catalina de Arousa did at first. So she disguised herself as a man so she could like sneak away and not have the Swedish people know what she was doing. So this was a man disguise. She buckled on a sword and tangent. The history of people from her family, the Vasa dynasty, going in disguise was not new. In fact, it's kind of like she's like living up to her family name in this. So her father, Gustav Adolphus, had in fact gone in disguise to Brandenburg when he was courting her mother, Maria Eleonora. And years before, the founder of the Vasa dynasty, her great-grandfather Gustav I, Cecilia's father from the Ski-Ski Revolution, had of course traveled the land disguised as a peasant as he recruited more and more people to join the Ski-Ski Revolution. So she's just like really, truly, as much as she wants to distance herself from her family and her identity, it's just, she's just, you know, doing things that her relatives also did. Also, recently, a Danish, like recently to her, not recently to me now, recording this, recently to her, a Danish woman named Leonora Ulfelt had also traveled disguised as a man, and I need to pause to talk about that for a minute. Leonora Ulfelt was the daughter of the Danish king Christian IV. Now, this is the same king Christian who... Maria Eleonora had been pen pals with. He was the one who had been abandoned by his wife, his first wife, and who Maria Eleonora, they were pen pals and she showed up and he was like, oh, you're a nightmare person. And then spent a couple of years trying to extricate her from Denmark. So Leonora, his daughter. And it's kind of a vibe that's similar to Cecilia being the daughter of Gustav, where it's just this kind of like longstanding king and just the rebellious daughter. I love that energy. Anyway, Christian had like 25 children or something, but Leonora was his favorite. So, you know, she stood out in some way, charisma-wise or whatever. So she had been born to his second wife, who hadn't been a queen. So Leonora was not like 100% a royal, but like she and her other siblings were, you know, married off for alliance reasons. Such that in 1636, when Leonora was... 15, she was married to a 30-year-old man named Corfitz Ulfelt. Corfitz was made a count for all of his services to the crown, and his power and stature grew, and so Leonora got power too by association with him. So she was kind of like the first lady of Denmark because there wasn't a queen, because of course um, the queen had left the king for a, what was it, like a German count or something? Anyway, despite the 15-year age gap and the child marriage of it all, Leonora's marriage to Corfit seemed to have been like, in terms of this podcast slash history, a pretty good one. 
um, at least compared to the marriages of her sisters. So her father died and her half-brother became the new king, Frederick III of Denmark. And Frederick did not like corfits. Frederick's wife was Sophie Amelie of Brunswick-Luneburg, and Sophie Amelie did not care for Leonora and how much sort of power she had as sort of like queen in all but names. So this became a rivalry, Sophie Amelie versus Leonora. In 1651, Corfitz was rumored to be involved with a plot to poison the royal family, and he was cast out of Denmark along with Leonora, his wife. They became fugitives, often wandering about to elude capture. Leonora sometimes spent weeks disguised as a man, once fending off arrest from Danish pursuers at gunpoint, and another time she had to fend off the caresses of an infatuated barmaid. Love it. So at her insistence, like she could have stayed behind, but she wanted, she liked life on the run. So she insisted that she would go with Corfitz during his exile and all of his expeditions. What they were trying to do was just, they were engaging in intrigues with Denmark's enemies, hoping to either return to Copenhagen in power or to humiliate those who held power there. Love that energy too. So this was all happening at around the same time Christina was also traveling around similar areas, also in disguise as a man. So that's just in terms of parallels of like women disguised as men. It's, you know, I, I, I would think probably most women in Denmark and Sweden didn't disguise themselves as men, but these are two prominent examples of people who did simultaneously. What happened to Leonora, just so you know, because I can't leave you not knowing the rest of the story. Later, um, so Corfus was eventually caught and imprisoned. Leonora went to England to get repayment from King Charles II because Corfitz had loaned money to King Charles II during his exile. This was during the part of English history, and we're definitely going to be talking about this some more, both in the Christina episodes and some subsequent episodes of this podcast. So Charles I had been beheaded by Oliver Cromwell in England, and then Oliver Cromwell took over. Charles II had escaped, um, and while he was in exile, like on the continent of Europe. So he kind of pops in and out of this story a couple times. Anyway, so I guess clearly part of this was King Charles needed some money, and Corfitz had loaned him some money. Corfitz died. Charles had gone back to England, became the king again. Um, he had like 7,000 mistresses, and we are going to talk about him, spoiler, later this season, because two of his mistresses were pretty awesome. I'm sure they were all awesome. Anyway. So Leonora went to England to solicit repayment from King Charles for money Corfitz had loaned him before he was king again. The king repaid the debt by welcoming Leonora, who was his cousin. I don't know, all the royals are all related. Um, so he welcomed her, but then had her arrested as she boarded a ship to leave England, and then he turned her over to Denmark. Betrayal by her cousin, the king. So Leonora was taken to a holding cell and cross-examined, but she refused to rat on her husband, Corfitz. Finally, she consented um, to giving up, I guess, her assets or land or something upon the province that Corfitz would be set free. But she was betrayed again. Corfitz was condemned and a writ was issued for his execution and the exile of their children. Corfitz escaped. He joined the children abroad. Leonora was not at first told this. And so she, was com she had to watch as he was burned in effigy. So like a Corfitz shaped like doll was burned and they told her it was him. Not sure. She never saw him again, uh, but there's no evidence that he sought her freedom or reunion with her prior to his death. Corfitz sucks. 
For the next 22 years, Leonora remained in the custody of the Danish state, incarcerated without charge or trial in Copenhagen Castle's infamous Blue Tower. During this era, she wrote her memoirs, which is how we know a lot of this stuff, in which she said her cell was small, filthy, foul, infested with fleas, and then the rats were so numerous and hungry that they ate her night candle as it burned. How did she write her memoirs, you might be wondering, in this horrible place? Well... She learned to piece together pages for writing from the wrappers on the sugar that she was given, and she made ink for her quill pen by capturing the candle's smoke on a spoon. Like, Shawshank Redemption, what? Like, come on. Slowly, she adjusted to this situation. She was there for 22 years. She ceased longing for revenge or death. You know, she really made peace with it. And she developed a dark humor. I think she would have had to. She studied the vermin, the rats, who were her only companions, recording her observations and conjectures about their instincts with the ink she made from candle smoke on a spoon when the rats weren't eating the candles. When she heard that Corfitz had died abroad, she marveled. She only felt relief. Not that he had died. She wasn't like anti-Corfitz, but she was relieved that he had finally eluded his persecutors, like they could never catch him now because he had died on his own terms. She received a bit better treatment following the death of Friedrich III, the new king, guess what his name is, Christian V, sent his ministers to solicit consent from his mother, Sophie Amelie, to free the prisoner. But Sophie Amelie, like, still holding up this old rivalry. She had not, like, made peace like Leonora had. Anyway, she rejected this. Eventually, King Christian had Leonora moved to more spacious quarters in the tower installed a stove against the cold of Copenhagen winters so she wouldn't have like a Rene Descartes in Sweden moment and commanded her window be opened fresh air the queen so so this is not the mother this is not Sophie Emily this is Christian's wife the queen loaned her silkworms which Leonora eventually returned in a casket on which were embroidered in silk made from the worms so she'd embroidered in silk the words that um, should Leonora's bonds be loosed, which is like a pretty epic, long-term, silk-based move. She's now allowed actual pen and paper and received a gift from her nephew of some money, which she spent on books. And it was in this time she began to write in earnest. So she may have started writing with, you know, ink made from smoke from candles, but at this time she had pen and paper. So I'm going to guess that's probably when most of her memoirs were read. Sophie Amelie died in February of 1685, and then a couple months later, May 1685, Leonora was informed that an issue, a royal order had been issued for her release. So by then, she had already entered into legend, a royal adventuress who had been um, held captive. So when she was released, she was 63 years old. She had spent 21 years, 9 months, and 11 days in the tower and she lived her last years quietly on the island of Loland, where she occupied her time editing the memoir she written in prison. So an icon. I had to just, I couldn't not tell you all of that. Not enough for a full episode, but I feel like important to share. Back to Christina. Christina, I would say, not as impressive in the same way as Leonora, but impressive just in her unrelenting, tenacity so disguised as a man she also took on a secret man's name remember how much she liked being sneaky like the first when she first was like allegedly sneaking around with kg 
She seemed to enjoy the sneaking around more than the like illicit love affair between cousins. So of course she took on a fake name. She didn't make up a fake name though. She took she just adopted the name of one of the men who was with her, which shows either a lack of imagination or there's some reason she wanted to do that. Or she just really liked his name. Let me know what you think. His name was Count Christoph von Dona. So she was now pretending to be Count Christoph von Dona with her like Lord Farquaad haircut, her pants. And she found she really liked wearing pants. She liked having short hair. And she kind of continued dressing kind of like this for the rest of her life. Not in disguise as a man, but just like a woman in pants became kind of her thing. So the current king and queen of Denmark, who were, if I said it was Christian, that wouldn't help you. But I think this was at this point still Leonora's dad and his second wife. So maybe Leonora's mom. Anyway, the king and queen of Denmark prepared to greet her. Like remember she had left Sweden at the Sweden-Denmark border. She had cut her hair, etc. So they were like, okay, she's coming. They've been told by like people to expect her and they were like out front waiting for her but she just like rode right past (laughs) um she was just like gotta go so all that they were able to greet was like remnants of her baggage and a few apologetic and tired servants because she's just like guess what i'm not doing anything anyone expects she was already five days ahead actually by the time that they thought they went out to like greet her so basically her eagerness just to get the fuck away from sweden was her main driving force here along with adrenaline and just fun of this adventure so she was now 27 years old free for the first time in her life and without the single guiding principle that had defined her last like decade of life of just doing the opposite of whatever axel wanted you know like what was she gonna do who was she even so she started figuring things out she went to visit friedrich iii there's so many friedrichs in this story um the duke of holstein gottorp and while there She was like, you know what? Your daughters are so nice. I think KG should marry one of your daughters. So she sent letters back to KG being like, I like these two. You should take one of them as your wife, KG. Uh, Speaking of KG, he was back in Sweden and he was just being the king. And he's like, I had arranged 5,000 soldiers to like escort her across the continent. Why did Christina just like run off on a horse with four guys? He never truly understood her. So I would say, could he have ever truly loved her? His spies were everywhere, though, keeping an eye on her and what she was up to. Like, her disguise was bad. It was, like, very obvious that she was herself. She had, like, if you've seen any portraits of her, she had, like, an extremely distinctive-looking face. She was also very small. She had the crooked shoulders. And I think her personality would give her away as well that she was Christina. So they reported back to KG, like, things she did. Like, how at one point en route... She had walked into an inn with a firearm dangling around her neck, which this is oldie times firearms. So that would be like a real big, heavy thing. And she was like a very short person. So that would have been notable, certainly. She headed to Hamburg, where the city's magistrates were expecting her. And she actually showed up and they had prepared a fancy house for her, but she didn't want to stay in that fancy house. She wanted to stay in the house of her new banker, Diego Texera. This had all been prearranged by her friend, Antonio Pimental, who is the Spanish guy who had sort of helped her figure out her escape plan and who's the one that in the Greta Garbo movie they act like was her lover. So the people of Hamburg were annoyed, or I guess the like, people of Hamburg, whatever, they were busy doing things. But like the people in charge of Hamburg were like, but we had like prepared this whole house for you because she's still a queen. It's like really exciting to have a royal visit. But they were also mad 
because Diego Texera was Jewish and there was all this religious stuff going on. So at this point, they didn't know about the Catholic stuff necessarily. They just knew Christina was the queen of a major Protestant country. Um, to stay with a Jewish person was like, oh, the scandal. Her biographer, Veronica Buckley, wrote this great sentence. Those who had endured her trousers in silence now began to protest. Christina, to her great credit, was like, I'm sorry, didn't literally Jesus himself spend a lot of time with Jewish people? Was Jesus himself not born Jewish? Did Jesus not prefer the company of Jewish people to any other kinds of people? Not a quote, but basically what she said. Because honestly, like she read so many books, she was really well read on religious matters and gave zero fucks about religious bigotry. She's just like, if someone's my friend, they're my friend, like, fuck off. So she was annoying about a lot of stuff, but legitimately like cool about this. She was just like, I'm staying with my banker, Diego. If you don't like that, fuck you. So she went to visit Duke Friedrich of Holstein Gottrop. There's talk about a marriage between one of his daughters and KG. Christina met both of the daughters and advised KG to marry the older one. So they, in the, like, Henry VIII, Anne of Cleves way, like, they sent portraits of both of them, and he chose, actually, the younger one, not the one she suggested. So he ended up marrying Hedvig Eleonora. Later, in her unpublished memoir, Christina would say KG regretted his choice of a wife, and she imagined him saying, I shall be miserable all my life, since Christina has refused me the glory of possessing her. Nothing can console me for it. Again, she imagines that's what he said. Maybe he did. So yeah, Christina's taking Hamburg. She's making a spectacle of herself with her haircut, her pants, maybe the gun around her neck, just like prancing around with almost no escort. She would leave the city. Twice she returned so late that the gates of the city had to be opened, especially for her. She gave zero fucks. Like this was truly, I mentioned before, like a child star getting older, but this is truly like her Miley Cyrus bangers moment, just being like, you know, you can't control me. It's like Britney Spears overprotected, where she's just like, I'm taking control of my life in a, the most chaotic way possible. She can't be tamed, much like Miley Cyrus. So an envoy arrived to relay the good wishes of the Spanish king, because it was like the Spanish people who had like helped her escape and were sort of arranging things for her to go meet the Pope, etc., to meet the envoy, she was like, okay, so she put on a skirt on top of her pants, like a short skirt. So it's a real, so much about her story feels contemporary to me. And this is really the new, you know, 90s Y2K fashion moment, like a skirt over pants. Christina did it first. So every country had spies watching her and they were all trying to figure out like what was her secret plan, not realizing there was no plan. She was just like being, she was just being Miley. One English spy wrote, It is believed that nature was mistaken in her, and that she was intended for a man, for in her discourse. They say she talks loud and sweareth notably. So again, people just being like, she's a woman in pants, and she like sits with her legs spread and like swears. So they're like, that must be, can we trace this back to her genitalia? Otherwise, I'm confused. So just like, I'm so tired of that plot point. Like, get over it, everybody. She also took a bit of time to hang out a bit with her cousin, um, not Maria Euphrosyne, but her other cousin who she grew up with at Princess Aunt Catalina's house. I think it was Maria Eleonora. That's her mother's name. I might have written that down wrong. Maria, the other one. Her cousin Maria was now married and was now a German countess. So I guess they were just, you know, rem reminiscing about their days growing up in the castle. 
And then early one morning, Chris just like left. Like the magistrates of Hamburg woke up to find she had left without bothering to let anyone know she was leaving. That's just how she does it. That's the Christina way. Uh, the only thing that she left behind was kind of an insult in that in the she had attended Lutheran mass and she had left a small book in a pew there, which sort of indicated that she had not been paying attention to the church service, but rather had been reading this book of like Virgil poetry or whatever. Because I can't emphasize enough, she gave zero fucks and everyone was just like so confused. And so all the spies were like, where's she going to go next? Assuming she had a plan, which she did not. One rumor was that she was headed for the town of Spa, literally a place called Spa. Coincidentally, this was where we kind of like went back around the timeline when I was talking about Leonora. We went ahead of Christina's story. So again, like we're in Christina's era. So at this point, Charles II had not yet become king of England. And he was at this point literally hanging out in Spa. He was, so Christina's 27, Charles age 24 was seen by some as maybe a potential husband for her, like that she would like help him become king of England again. But again, these are rumors being spread by people who just wouldn't understand when she consistently always said she would never marry anyone. At the same time over in England, so Oliver Cromwell was in charge. His wife had fallen ill. Allegedly, she saw a painting of Christina and was like, oh, she looks nice. Like, you should marry her next. Like, like I don't know. Like, everyone just wanted her to marry someone because they, they're like at least then we'll understand what she's doing and she's just like i don't care if you don't understand i'm christina i'm just like <laughs> she's coming in like a wrecking ball over all of europe and everyone just needs to like get on board so she wound up in holland where she took the time to meet up with a lady scholar named anna maria von schurman on maria was 20 years older than christina she was a linguist and a mistress of philosophy, Descartes, R.I.P., had admired her, as had other scholars Christina had kept trapped in her Swedish academy. So she's like, I guess I'll go see this like lady scholar. We don't know what exactly happened at their meeting. My guess is that Christina just had that thing, like when she meets a woman who was legitimately like smart and good at stuff, it just made her be jealous because she wanted to be the only woman who was good at stuff. So... The visit was brief, and then she hopped back into her carriage to go to the Spanish Netherlands, where she wound up in a city that is my personal nemesis in city form. That city is Antwerp. What I'll explain to you about that and why, you know what, if anyone listening is from Antwerp, I'm sure your city is lovely. I'm sure it's a great city. It's the name of the city is why I can't deal with it. And it's because when I was a young child traveling, I took a, a trip to Europe with my family, the Grand Alpine Tour. We went around various places, including Antwerp. And when you are a young child whose name is Anne, and you are the youngest of a group of siblings, and to people where English isn't your first language, you might not know. But the word twerp in English language, at least in Canada, can refer to a small or young or annoying person. So to go to a city called Antwerp, being called Anne and being the youngest person there, you know, it was, it was, it was a rough time for me. Not that rough, but honestly, I just like hold it out against 
I had not thought about that in decades until I was researching this and I was just like oh, Antwerp and all the memories came flashing back. I have a very loving family. They they joke because they love, but I will hold it against Antwerp until the day I die. Anyway, Christina is in Antwerp where she stayed at the residence of another friend of hers who I think she had met through, um, he was a friend of Antonio Pimentel and also a friend of Diego Texera who was another Jewish banker. His name was Garcia de Ion, the Baron of Bourneval. So I also, when I was researching this, I was just like, oh, you know, we haven't had many Jewish people show up in the stories that I've done. Not intentionally. I'm not avoiding having there be Jewish people in the stories. There just haven't been. And now that I was thinking about that, I was like, I need to make a concerted effort to like have some Jewish people, some stories of Jewish people. And then I was like, this story has two Jewish people in it and they're both money lenders. And I'm just like, God damn it. This is not, I'm anyway, but here's, I'm telling you the facts of what happened and here's what happened. And what happened is Christina had two friends who were Jewish and they were both money lenders. That was their job. They seem like great people. She liked them very much. If you have suggestions of Jewish women from history um, that I could cover on the podcast, let me know on Instagram and my DMs or email me. There's a contact form at vulgarhistory.com. Anyway, so her new friend is Garcia de Ion. And so she was just hanging out with him in Antwerp, waiting to be invited by the Pope to just come hang out in Rome. And so the, the whole next part of her life could begin. While she waited, she was, I mean, I think we know, honestly, I'm impressed that Christina's been able to keep this super secret sexy Catholic conversion a secret this long, given how much she loves espionage and having everyone know she's doing espionage. So she hung out in Antwerp, visiting with Jesuits, you know, Catholic priests, the same ones they were in, um, in Jenga's story. She hung out with Carmelite nuns. All these spies were watching her and they're just like, they were just like, why is she hanging out with Catholics? They're like, Maybe she's going to become a nun, which, like, can you imagine? The only person less suited to be a nun is Catalina de Arauzo, frankly. So then, while still in Antwerp, goddamn Antwerp, she reunited with a guy who she had known in Stockholm, who is the Comte Raimundo Montecuccioli, Duca di Melfi. He was the guy who she'd, he'd helped her when she left, so he had helped her smuggle her jewels and coins out of Sweden. And Montecuccioli revealed he had been sent by the Spanish emperor to deliver a letter. And here's the thing. The letters from the Spanish emperor always are like really flattering, but that he never offers her money. He never offers her help. So like his guys, like Pimental, Montecuccioli, like they had helped Christina get out of Sweden. Um, and she really had expected that the Spanish emperor was going to kind of help her out financially. And he did not. Speaking of, Antonio Pimental came into town as well. Also, in his status as an envoy from the Spanish emperor. Um, again, just like a letter full of flattery and no real news. Christina wanted to make a grand public profession of faith in Rome in front of the Pope, but the Spanish emperor would not allow this because the Pope, who at this point was Innocent X, was very ill and not expected to survive the winter. And you know how they choose a new pope? I think they must have done They must have done it back then. It's such a weird, old-timey thing to do where they go into the room and then like when the smoke turns to white, that's when they've chosen a new pope. So it's like, who's going to be the new pope? So Innocent X had been friendly to Spain, 
but they didn't know who's going to be the next pope. The white smoke might choose somebody who prefers France. And the Spanish emperor wanted Spain to get the credit for converting Christina. So she was kind of being forced to stay in the Spanish Netherlands with the conversion plans kept secret for now. She was like, fine, but she didn't want anyone to think that she wasn't in control of her destiny. So she claimed that it was her choice that she wanted to stay in Antwerp. But honestly, she had no choice because she had by now run out of money. Because even when she was the queen, remember, she wasn't good at money. And now she like had actually a finite amount and she had spent it all, which might be why she kept making friends with moneylenders. So how was she spending her money? Well... She was spending on credit. She kept giving gifts to random passers-by, entertaining lavishly. Um, she spent her time playing chess and croquet. And in her free time, she just kind of like rode around in her carriage, avoiding going to church, and went to the theater every night. In fact, she liked this theater company so much that she hired the entire theater company for her own private entertainment. Like, this is why she ran out of money. But she was very much like you know, if you have money, you should spend it. Her quote is that the greatest pleasure money could buy was the pleasure of spending it. And the thing to bear in mind here is she didn't have money, but she's still spending it. So again, you know, it's like, she kind of reminds me of her mom a bit as much as she hated her mom and didn't want to be like her mom. Wasn't her mother also known for giving inappropriately expensive gifts? Anyway, an envoy came from KG in Sweden, honestly inviting her back to Sweden. And she was like, Never. Then, a new visitor came, Louis de Bourbon, the Prince of Condé. Once the terror of Spanish armies, he was now waging war against his own country of France. And we know how Christina felt about France and France-adjacent people, especially handsome men. He was about five years older than her, so not super old. And he had been recommended to her, she'd heard about him from her good doctor, Pierre Bourdelais, the one who, like, got her to like take baths and eat meals so she sent him an invitation right away mostly because she thought he sounded cool and hot and also because she knew it would bother people pimental her her bro knew how susceptible christina was to smoldering french people didn't trust the prince de conde but he needn't have worried eventually it all sort of cooled off after in a sort of like Njinga adjacent reverse situation she wouldn't there's something about like the chair or like he had to stand in front of her and he got mad and i don't know it sounds like they're actually similar people in the sense of they would never be submissive to anyone ever but in the nearby city of the hague another notable frenchman was staying and this was pierre hector chanou so in sort of like Christina just like is so excited she stopped being the king slash queen of Sweden and she wants to just like prove herself on the world stage by just like doing amazing stuff but again in a, I have been watching I mentioned last time old seasons of Survivor she's just really causing chaos for chaos reasons because she wants to be like great but she really has no goal other than just trying to impress people so this guy was staying nearby Pierre Hector Chanou so she publicly, or like secretly in letters, I'm not sure, she told other people that Pierre Hector had invited her to act as a mediator between France and Spain to negotiate an end to the war. And he was like, I 100% did not ask you to do that. Like, could you please like release a public statement saying you made that up? And she was like, no. So then Pierre Hector released a public statement being like, that is not true. That is not why I'm here. She was really mad. 
about him like quote betraying her or something and this whole thing caught the attention of a very important person in france cardinal mazarin who was now convinced that she was secretly in league with the spanish i feel like she's not so secretly in league with the spanish they like clearly are the people who helped her escape anyway cardinal mazarin is a notable person who's going to reoccur in this story and other stories later this season. So he was like in charge of the church stuff in France while Louis the 14th was a little boy like while he was cuz he's like such a long-serving king the 14th. Mazarin was super 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 influential and kind of in charge of France for a while. So he began to have mean pamphlets published about her Mark that on your bingo card, a pamphlet moment. So Mazarin, these pamphlets said like Christina was a sex worker. She was a lesbian. She was an atheist. These pamphlets made their way to every royal court in Europe and tarnished her reputation. I would say, how much of a reputation did you have to begin with? Christina was just like, to quote Lizzo, all the rumors are true. And also, fuck you all. So it's time for her to move on. Thank God she's leaving Antwerp. She and her small entourage left to go to the capital of the Spanish Netherlands, which is, I believe, Brussels. Um, They were greeted by fireworks as she sailed in on the Archduke's gilded barge. Once there, she got to stay in the palace. Um, And then on Christmas Eve, she finally had her super secret sexy Catholic conversion in a small chapel attached to her bedroom. The witnesses included Monte Cuccioli, Antonio Pimental and two other Spanish diplomats. Fireworks burst over the town and everyone in town was like, why are there fireworks? Because it was all a secret. And this was totally not how Christina wanted this to happen. You know, she wanted this grand procession of faith in front of the Pope, in front of everybody, not just like four witnesses in a chapel attached to her bedroom. Also, if you were wondering how serious is Christina about this new faith for which she had abdicated being the queen, uh, not at all. So while attending a Catholic mass shortly after her conversion, she was laughing and joking. And she even made fun of the idea of transubstantiation, which is the Catholic thing about um, the wine and the little communion hosts literally become the body and blood of Christ. So it's kind of like a foundational belief of being a Catholic. So the Spanish Catholics who witnessed this were like, wait, what? Archduke Leopold Wilhelm of Austria was like, wait, she's not taking this seriously? Like, why would she um, abdicate being queen to be Catholic if she didn't even care about being Catholic? And that's the thing. Honestly, like, her motivations are really obvious, but the people then just couldn't... Religion was so important to them, they couldn't understand somebody using it. So, randomly, yeah, so the Archduke was like, she must have done this for political gain which again is wrong. He didn't know her well enough to know she only ever did things for to make herself look good and to cause messy drama. But then the Pope died. Remember, he was sick anyway. And then her mother, Maria Eleonora, died aged 55, RIP. As per Veronica Buckley's biography, Maria Eleonora passed her last months in bleak half-mourning, bewailing her daughter's departure from the land she herself had taught her to hate. So Christina took to the countryside for three weeks, where she spent most of her time hunting. And everyone grieves in their own way, including if you're grieving a mother who you hated. You know, grief manifests in all different ways. So then she came back, baby! 
So the white smoke had elected a new pope who was Alexander VII. And although the Spanish had been worried about it, in fact, he especially hated the French. So this was as close as the Spanish were going to get to a supportive pope. He was not supportive of Christina in the sense of he wouldn't loan her money. So she was still kind of broke and had to figure out alternate plans. So she tried to secure a loan against... Remember when she abdicated, they gave her some lands. It's not like, here's your land, build a house on it. It was more like she would get the profits from like the farmers or whoever worked the land. So she tried to secure a loan against those lands that she owned. KG, for the first time in his life, stood up to her and was like, no. Shocking. So she had no money. She couldn't get a loan based on these lands because of KG. The Austrian emperor didn't like her because of her like making fun of transubstantiation. She had alienated the French entirely due to her dealings with the Spanish. And all that the Spanish king was doing was sending her letters being like, you're so great. I'm going to not give you money. So she was on her own for the first time in her life and she did not care for it. So she came up with a plan. I mean, I feel like every time she comes up with a plan, you can in brackets just add like a bad plan. Her plans were all bad, but they are all audacious. So her plan was to sell everything she had, um, paintings and jewels, etc., and then to use that money to lead an army against KG and retake Sweden. I mean, sure, but that was thwarted both by being a bad plan and also because KG was not just living around, like waiting for her to do stuff so he could react to it. He led the Swedish army into Poland. And they marched through slash fought on the lands that were meant to give Christina money. So um, those lands were all kind of messed up and not really doing much farming or agricultural stuff because armies like marched through and fought on them. And then also Sweden was at war. So the demands of war kept them pretty poor. So Sweden couldn't give her money anyway. So finally, she was able to borrow some money from her wealthy host in Antwerp, Garcia de Ion, who just seems like a good dude like he doesn't he clearly knew she was not going to repay him anytime soon like he put in his will for his um, children like you know if Christina ever repays me then this money goes to so-and-so so he was just like take this money you know we're friends so she left for Italy and she had grown a pretty large entourage by now just from like people who she met people who wanted to hang out with her so her entourage included three musicians, eight secretaries, um, about 250 people, along with 247 horses. The Pope's special emissary, Father Lucas Holstinius, who was the head of the Vatican Library, was waiting for her in the imperial city of Innsbruck. When she arrived, a new musical drama was performed called Largia by Antonio Sesti. This is like as perfect a performance as Macbeth was for James I where it's just like, what is this person like? And let's just make a show that is that. So it is a tale of, it's a six hour play, a tale of love, betrayal, incest, and lesbian seduction with a heroine in trousers, a chorus of pirates. There's a whole ballet part of it, plenty of theatrical wizardry. Um, she watched it twice. She loved it so much. I'm sure she tried to hire them to travel around with her, but um, she'll hire some other performers. Then, November 3rd, 1655, Christina announced her conversion to Catholicism. She wrote to the Pope, she wrote to KG, and in Innsbruck, bells rang out, cannons boomed, and the day was spent in public celebration. And just a few days later, she left Innsbruck to reach her destination of Rome. 
So note, like her staying in Innsbruck financially kind of almost ruined Ferdinand Charles, the Archduke of Austria, because of how much money he spent to entertain her there. The journey to Rome was planned in detail by the Vatican to be sort of indirect because they weren't quite ready for her to arrive yet. They were still preparing lots of stuff to greet her, but the Pope had sent along a special carriage for her to ride in, along with a special chef who was Luigi Fedele, the man of a thousand spices. Um, In Pissarro, which is a place in Italy, she was entertained by dancers, acrobats, and circus strongmen including the handsome brothers Ludovico and Francesco Santinelli, who so impressed her that she hired them to come work for her and, I guess, to speak her, like, on-call acrobats. She also brought along uh, an Italian man called Gian Rinaldo Mondaleschi, who is going to be very important from this point on. She eventually gets to Rome, so she arrived on December 20th under darkest night. She was led directly for... A meeting with the Pope where she made she bowed very low which is like a thing you have to do when you meet the Pope apparently the first submissive gestures she ever made in her life and then she took a seat beside him and the chair this is another chair like chair moments I think needs to go in the bingo card this chair was a big deal like not since and Jenga has a chair been such a major plot point in an episode of vulgar history so the usual rule was that If somebody was a ruling monarch, they got to sit in a real chair when they were with the Pope. But if you weren't a ruling monarch, you had to sit in this like plain stool. Christina was still technically a king, but just not a ruling king. And she was not ruling because she had converted to Catholicism. So they didn't want to be like, hey, sit on this plain bench. So a guy comes into the story who becomes her friend as well. Gian Lorenzo Bernini, sculptor, architect, painter also some is called the next Michelangelo. Bernini designed a low-backed chair with rounded arms that was kind of like not the regular monarch chair, but also not the plain stool. So, you know, problem solved with his chair design. Christina met with the Pope and then went off to her rooms, and so many people were so curious about her that there's lots of descriptions of what she looked like. So what they said was she was wearing a plain gray gown, so I think probably the same plain dress she often was wearing in her portraits, with a black scarf around her shoulders. Those who saw her remarked on her big, bright blue eyes, her very small size, and her brown, curly hair. Note, by now she had decided to... She just shaved her head and usually wore a wig, which is why her hair always looks exactly the same in every portrait. Uh, Usually, women were not allowed to sleep within the walls of the Vatican, but this was a special case. She got her special chair, and she got a whole wing assigned to her with eight rooms, All of them had been decorated especially by Bernini's brother, Luigi. The rooms were at the top of a part of the Vatican called the Tower of the Winds, so she had this beautiful view of the whole city of Rome and beyond. The next morning, she was presented with a carriage, which was a personal gift from the Pope, designed by Bernini, decorated in blue silk and silver, along with, like, what's a carriage without horses, like Cinderella's fairy godmother would say. So the carriage came along with six fast horses to draw the carriage, two mules to pull the litter, and a smaller horse, which was for her to ride. So the small horse was typically like a lady's horse. So you'd think Chris would be like, give me a man's horse, but she's like a small person. So I think functionally it was a good size. So she got on the horse at once to show off how good she was at it. And was like, oh my God, you're so great. And she's just like, I'm living my dream. And then like me in every city I ever visit, she went to check out the local library. 
after two days, she left the city, but just technically, because she then came back in for her grand official re-entry. So she chose to ride her horse rather than in the carriage. She put a plume in her hat for celebration. She's still wearing the like plain gray dress because that was her look. And also she had like pawned all of her jewelry by now. The people of Rome greeted her enthusiastically. There's a great stone arch. I guess you cross through when you're entering Rome and the Pope had had it inscribed with a special greeting, wishing her a happy entrance. As part of these ongoing festivities, which is like happening at around Christmas, so she received the Sacrament of Confirmation from the Pope himself, and as part of this, she was given a new confirmation name. So her name she had been given at birth was Christina Augusta, and I guess when they told her you can choose a new name, she was like, I choose Alexandra in honor of her hero, Alexander the Great, who honestly, I profiled him on So This Asshole on Patreon, and he's kind of the least asshole I've ever covered on there. He's just He lived a very short time, mostly just did battles an okay person could not have less to do with how Christine was living her life. The Pope was like, like the confirmation name is supposed to be like a Catholic based name. So could you add the name Maria, like for like the Virgin Mary? And she was like, fine, but she never used that name. So it was just to make him happy. She said she'd do that, but she never used that name. She, but she did use Christina Alexandra. So then she moved out of the Vatican and into the Palazzo Farnese, which was uh, sort of half abandoned but fancy castle. Parts of it were falling apart, but that's mostly because no one had lived in it for a while. It had been partially designed by Michelangelo. Most importantly to Christina, it was rent-free. So she could just like live there with her like 250 servants who she wasn't paying and just like vibe out. So the palace had lots of paintings in it already, including you know, paintings on the ceiling, but also just like frame paintings on the walls. And a lot of them had had like with plaster fig leaves put on to cover the like sexy bits um, or some especially sexy paintings had like curtains in front of them. And she had all the fig leaves removed and all the curtains open. So all the sexy paintings were all full on display. She also hung up some of her own erotic paintings when someone, I don't know, some Vatican guy expressed surprise or horror at like the nudity on her walls she was like i'm not going to be bound by rules made for priests like my paintings shall have their tits out and all their bits out everything was really exciting you know everyone was so excited to have her there but she was lonely you know who she missed was her best friend ebaspare possibly also her lover question mark so she wrote a letter to ebba in which she reported she had yet to find anyone to replace her as her best friend. Don't worry, she will find someone to be her best friend and possible lover shortly. So then it's time for Carnival, which, because in her honor, was renamed the Queen's Carnival. There were plays, there were processions, there were races. She enjoyed seeing all the shows. One of the races, so there's buffalo races. There's also, like, one of the things that they did was a thing, it was a race, quote, a race. It was... A hate crime. It was all of the Jewish people were forced to run by having rocks thrown at them. And Christina was just kind of like, mm, that's not cool. So not that she stopped it from happening, but she was kind of like, mm, I'm not down with that. She thought to herself and then went to another play. So, I mean, just in terms of Christina and her being not anti-Semitic like everyone else around her. Um, she didn't stop it, so I guess she's still a little anti-Semitic. Meanwhile, so she still hadn't been able to pay her servants, who started because they needed 
money. They started stealing silver and pieces of furniture. Even some of the doors uh, were being broken up for firewood. They were just like doing what they could. And uh, she did nothing about this and rather got busy opening an academy for scholars like she had in Stockholm. So this was, first it was a regular weekly meeting of local nobles and culturally minded cardinals featuring music and discussion. But like many book clubs, it quickly just turned into more of just like a weekly group hang and the members formed Christina's new circle of friends. She also went to visit convents because that was another place to listen to music. There were rumors like she was going to convents, so people, like the spies, were like, she's going to convents. Is she going to become a nun? Has she fallen in love with a nun? But it's like, no, she just, okay. So public performances by women were forbidden in Rome at this point, so convents were the only place women could gather to make music together. In fact, for women, talking about music was forbidden, so it was singing in harmony. So at these convents, the performances were just chanting with no harmony. The only instrument they were allowed to use was the organ. And as soon as a nun took their vows, they couldn't learn singing or practice singing. So this really just depended on people who were good at singing or music before they became a nun. Christine liked to go there, but this is not at all a feminist moment for her because despite her own unorthodox pants-wearing lifestyle, she was never, and she never will be, a champion for other women to do the same thing, um, for other women to be able to live more unorthodox lifestyles because she felt there's no point in that because there was no overcoming what in her eyes was the worst defect of all being a woman and then we get into her new best friend maybe this is no this is like actually a love story it's just not necessarily has sex in it so by now christina 29 years old and her new best friend was a roman cardinal who is 32 years old decio azzolino he was small dark-haired strong of feature though not handsome he was a subtle, witty man with a warm personality and a Mach Machiavellian sort of twist. He had a reputation, a bad reputation, from certain amorous liaisons less than decent and some other defects. So he was, he slept with a lot of women. And also he, the other defects included cheating his brother for money from their father's will, as well as being a spy. Christina wrote that Azzolina reminded her of Axel Oxenherna, which is interesting that she was drawn to him. Azzolino had worked in the past for Cifra, which is the section of the Vatican focused on creating codes and code breaking. And he was also one of the main letter writers for the Vatican. So he was in charge of intercepting and decoding secret letters of the Pope's enemies. I'm all in. And because like Christina, I love a spy moment and you know she loves the espionage stuff so she was just like oh you're like cool and hot and also you are a spy like hello new best friend he taught her the codes and then she was writing letters and codes back and forth with him Atzelino's many love affairs were no secret in Rome despite the whole like you know he was supposed to be celibate etc but like nobody was which is interesting because one of the things that appealed to Christina about Catholicism was this celibacy and she like Remember when she made her friends all swear to a vow of celibacy? But whatever. She's friends with this himbo. And she, I don't know, she had a weakness for bad boys. So she fell in love with him. And he might have fallen in love with her too. So he visited her more often than his job required. To the point that the Pope was like, ooh, oh no. Because like, he had this womanizing reputation. The Pope was like, uh, why don't you just go off to the country for some solitary reflection? Which Azzolino did. And then he came back and kept doing exactly the same stuff. At around the same time, and this, I don't know if this is just a coincidence, 
Christina began, she changed, she's trying out a new era for herself, a new, more feminine way of dressing with what is described as décolleté gowns, which means a tits-out neckline. So these dresses were so deeply décolleté that the Pope himself rebuked her for it. He was just like, put those tits in. In response, she kept wearing the décolleté dresses, but added a pearl necklace to conceal or perhaps accentuate the tits out of it all. So I don't know, maybe Azzolino was just doing like a queer eye moment with her where he's like, you know, try a different outfit. Why not? So in Veronica Buckley's biography, she suggests that Christina, you know, now falling in love, she like decided to like embrace her inner femininity and stuff. And it's like, "Mm, I don't think so. But whatever. She just like had a little tits out moment. Good for her. And so these two, like they were, they loved each other. Like, they clearly loved each other. There's other, st- other like with Ebba, with KG, with Magnus. It's more like Chris maybe had a crush. But this is, like, from their letters. Like, they deeply cared for each other. Did they have a sexual relationship? Who knows? Um, maybe not. I'm going to say probably not. Christina has written extensively about her distaste for sex. Like, the sexual, like, sexual acts. Um, she saw the sexual act um, of, like, you know, penetration as being an act of submission of a woman to a man, and she would never submit herself to a man. Here's a quote from her. She wrote, Despite her passionate nature, my pride, incapable of submitting to anyone, and my disdain, despising everything, have miraculously saved me. You know, whatever they may say, that I am innocent of all the things they have conjured up to blacken my life. I admit that if I had not been born a girl, my temperament might have led me into terrible disorder. So there's a lot to unpack there. She's saying just kind of like she's a passionate person. And if she'd been born a man, she maybe would have had a lot of sex. But she's a woman. And so she didn't. Unsure. There's a lot. You could really read her stuff and her writings. And there's a lot to, to think about. So the best description I can think of um, is that she and Azzolino had a romantic friendship. They were very devoted to each other. Um, and she was politically useful to him and he gave her something to do because not only was he like the official Vatican code guy, he was also the leader of a super secret society or like a semi-secret society, the Squadron Volant, which means the Flying Squad, which was a free thinking movement within the Catholic Church. And they needed a patron to fund them. And Christina was like, well, I'm a queen and here we go. She had no money, but that was not an issue because it was more just like her influence like people knowing she was the patron made them seem more impressive more important you know if there was like a royal visit she could kind of be their unofficial ambassador stuff like that and this gave her a way to be sneaking around and to be politically active without having to actually like do queen shit so um, her involvement in this bothered some other people including Antonio Pimentel because the flying squad did not support the Spanish because they were Italian. And in fact, all of Christina's friends now seem to be Italian because she dismissed all of her Spanish servants and kind of broke up with all of her French friends. And just, she's like all about, you know, Italy to her was like the new France. So effectively the Spanish had helped her escape Sweden and get this new position in Rome, but she had no further need for them, especially because the king had not actually supported her after she left Sweden. Like he had never sent her any money. He never helped So even Antonio Pimental abandoned her. He went off. He found it just like more peaceful 
and safe to be literally on the battlefields of Flanders rather than in Rome with Christina. So she really wanted to be like, I'm with the Italians now, fuck you, the Spanish. So she became embroiled in an anti-Spanish plot that involves the Habsburgs. And I can't believe this episode has Antwerp and the Habsburgs, like both the people in history who are my nemesis and the city name that is my nemesis. The things I have to go through for the show. So the Habsburgs, they were in charge of Spain and also controlled other areas, including the kingdom of the two Sicilies, which was the island of Sicily and most of the Italian mainland south of Rome, which they ruled from Naples. And so the anti-Spanish plot, like it wasn't Christina didn't invent it. She just like got brought in. So the Pope and his allies planned to seize Naples and make it part of the Papal States, which was like the part that like the Pope was in charge of. Azzolino, through his work with the Code Group, um, he was involved with this whole plan because through his like code-breaking letter reading, he had discovered a spy in the Vatican who was the Pope's nephew. So the whole taking over Naples scenario was not a new idea. So several years earlier, the working people of Naples had taken up arms against tax collectors. Rioting had followed, then rebellion. The viceroy had been thrown in prison. Um, But then the rebel leader immediately started acting like the former rulers, which uh, made his followers decide to lynch him. So then his henchmen claimed power and kept it for several months, declaring Naples a republic. So this is like a few years ago, just FYI. Meanwhile, some other people from Naples um, had approached Cardinal Mazarin, remember him, the one who's like kind of in charge of France because the king is a little boy, and they wanted to see if France would come and take over Naples instead of the Spanish. They proposed that the new king of Naples could be King Louis XIV's younger sibling, Philippe the Duc d'Anjou, who is, if you listen to the Chevalier Dayon episode, the French prince who was probably a trans woman who made the statue of trans Achilles at Versailles. So they wanted that Philippe to take over as monarch, but Mazarin, he was like a little boy, um, sorry, the king, the 14th was a little boy, Philippe was an even younger person, and they were like, it would be great if the monarch was not a child. They considered getting the Duke of Condé involved, because he's always up for some chaos. Anyway, eventually Mazarin decided to just go ahead and try to capture Naples um, himself. One of his co-conspirators, interestingly, was Christina's former grifter slash crush, Mark Duncan, opportunist extraordinaire. And Mazarin was able to briefly take over, but then the viceroy was reinstated. And that is what happened. Mazarin had not given up. So seven years after that, he sent a fleet of ships to challenge the Spanish, but a storm happened and it just never happened, never, it fell apart. But now, up to date with where we are with Christina in Rome, Mazarin was like, taking over Naples for France, take three. But he needed to name a new monarch for Naples. So at this point, Louis XIV was 18 and unmarried. Um, and that meant that Philippe was Louis' heir, so they couldn't, like, Philippe couldn't do this. If only there was some sort of, like, freelance king who was Catholic, hanging out with nothing better to do, and Christina is like, I've waited this moment my whole life. She was broke, she was bored, and she was, like, ready to be king again. You know, she was over having abdicated because she realized being a king without a kingdom was kind of, like, not as fun as she had thought. She wanted to be a monarch again with all the power and money that would provide so she could, like, 
you know, hire ballet companies and just like do her own thing. And Naples wasn't too far from Rome, so she and Azzelina could easily do their romantic friendship long distance. So she drifted away from her book club of friends and began spending time with a new circle of like spy type people who would help her take over Naples, including Gian Ronaldo Mondaleski, who I believe I mentioned before, who was the kind of rogue that she'd always liked best. Yeah, he was one of the ones she picked up en route to Rome. So he was involved in this as well. So all of her friends are now Italians. Um, she began sending secret letters to Mazarin, and together they developed a plan to take over Naples with her as the queen and the naming Philippe as the heir. Mazarin was like, great, I'll just get an army to do everything, and you can just like parade in once we're done. And Christina was like, I think not. I've been waiting my whole life for my own Alexander the Great moment where I can personally lead troops into battle. Mazarin is like, oh shit, this is like, oh no. She named Mondaleski her master of the horse and placed an order for new armor and all the things she'd need when she became queen of Naples, like getting very ahead of herself. Like she ordered a whole new wardrobe. Again, like where's her money coming from? Nowhere. She has no money. She was so excited by the prospect of becoming queen of Naples that she climbed to the top of the Castel Sant'Angelo and fired a cannon in her enthusiasm, but she didn't aim it into the air. So in fact, the cannonball just fell down into the town where it struck the Via Medici, a Renaissance palazzo with a facade of sculpted Florentine lilies. Now, one less lily than before with a cannonball lodged in its place. And I am going to end things there. For now, yes, Christina is going to be a four-part episode. Because like other people, even Catalina, it's like eventually her life's so down. Christina never slow down she just keeps going so next week we're gonna get more about christina and yeah thank you so much for listening to this little podcast so if you go to vulgarhistory.com there's a form there where you can leave me feedback suggestions of people to talk about in future episodes especially if you know about any cool jewish women you can there's links in the show notes but if you buy books through bookshop.org using the link in the show notes, then a little bit of money helps to support this podcast. You can also shop at vulgarhistory.store to get Vulgar History merch. You can use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off on vulgarhistory.store. There is maybe the, my most favorite thing I've ever put in the store, the Affair of the Necklace, the Necklace, the T-shirt, which is a T-shirt that makes it look like you're wearing the necklace from the Jean de Lamotte jewel heist. Anyway many things to look at there you can also support the show at patreon.com slash and foster writer so that's where if you pledge at least a dollar a month you get early access to the episodes if you pledge at least five dollars a month then you get the super secret sexy episodes you get vulgar peace theater where we will be talking shortly Alison epstein lana johnson and i about the girl king a movie book christina that is kind of christina fan fiction in the sense of it's just like what does this have to do with who this nightmare person even was beautiful costumes and then also when you pledge at least five dollars a month on patreon then you get access to so this asshole i just put up a poll there to choose who the next so this asshole person is going to be and massive because of a massive margin of votes it's going to be christopher columbus so like as much as i don't like talking about antwerp christopher columbus so stay tuned for that anyway and the patreon that's just like the money you pledge i give you the podcasts um as a thank you for supporting me but also the patreon is a way to directly support me and my work which i appreciate very much 
You can follow me on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod and Twitter at Vulgar History. Honestly, everything's wild. The world is just like, what is even happening? But I'm glad that we have this podcast to enjoy and just vibe out together, learning about Christine of Sweden. So keep your pants on and your tits out, and I'll talk to you next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.